Welcome back to Essential Ethics, and this is our sixth series, which is called Deciding with Children. I'm your host, John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I'm joined today by our senior clinical ethicist, Professor Lynn Gillam. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, John. Lynn is the Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and Professor at the University of Melbourne, Department of Global and Population Health. I'm also joined by Professor Claire Delaney. Welcome, Claire. Hello, John. Claire is a clinical ethicist uh, here at the Children's Bioethics Centre, also at the Peter McCallum Comprehensive Cancer Centre, and also at the University of Melbourne, keeping you busy, Claire. Indeed. (laughs) In this series, we want to present a new concept in paediatric bioethics, deciding with children. Traditional models of care in paediatrics do not necessarily take into account the views and preferences of the child on the grounds that children lack autonomy to make decisions for themselves due to their age. The work of decision-making generally falls to the parents, who are the natural and legal decision-makers in medical and other decisions they might make for their children. Some point, however, children do acquire ability to make decisions for themselves and are considered mature minors, but when and how that should happen is also contested. Today we want to consider the child in medical decision-making and look at the ethical underpinning of including children in decisions that affect how their life will go. We want to start the shift from deciding for children to deciding with children. Lynn, I might start with you. Sure. And just to get a historical background about decision-making for children in paediatric healthcare. Yeah, sure. Actually, John, I think it's probably helpful to get a sense of decision-making in healthcare more generally. If we look back far enough, the person who made decisions about medical treatment was the doctor, and that was the case even for adults. And what we've seen happen over time is an increasing uh, shift towards emphasis on individual autonomy and the adult patient making their own decisions for themselves. And I think that goes along with a recognition that um, in terms of what's in somebody's best interests, that's a partly subjective idea. So it depends on what that person themselves values and what their preferences So that's for adults. Um, Then in relation to children, again, we've increasingly seen the idea that um, parents have a role in decision-making for their children to uh, where we've got to now, you're suggesting as the almost default position, parents and doctors share the decision-making about the child. Our question is, where does the child fit into that? Since the the mid-80s, based on a, a UK court case, We've at least had the idea of the mature minor that it, at some level of um, development, an adolescent is essentially able to function as an adult and that's the point at which they should be able to make the decisions for themselves in the way that an adult would. Um, but that big space before that of um, to what extent the child should be involved, to what extent the children's wishes should be uh, sought or acted on, in any way. That's the kind of grey area I think that we want to unpack. But it's all, like it's an evolving space. And I think it's very interesting, Lynn, because you know, in, in clinical practice I see that patients will come as a baby and physicians will, will develop a relationship and, and of course the speaking is done by the parents. Or 
or, or parents will come a little bit later, but uh, you know they're making the appointment, they might be paying the bill, and so there's important to be discussing things with the parent. And it's, I think, just too easy to lose sight of where the child might be and understand where the child is, even amongst people here practising at you know, Royal Children's Hospital, paediatricians elsewhere. And so I think as we want to shift towards thinking about elevating the child in the discussion, I think it's really important for us to understand, you know, why we do that. And today is about, you know, what are the ethical things that underpin that? What are the principles and what are the considerations? So Claire, could I ask you, you know, what do you see as the ethical principles that that underpin deciding with children? Well, John, I think the ethical principles, the words are the same as what you would use for adults um, when thinking about respecting a child or including a child's voice into their healthcare decisions. So the ethical principles still revolve around it's important to uh, include a child because that's part of benefiting the child. So... Um, you can look at that as an instrumental outcome. So if you include the child's voice and preferences and ensure that they're um, understanding what's happening to them, they're likely to be more cooperative. So there's a, there's good reasons, good ethical reasons for that. The, the treatment will go better. They will keep coming in. They won't be so anxious about coming in because they, they have um, some understanding. There's also um, intrinsic respect for a child as a person reasons, which is the same as you would respect an adult as a person. The difference is the autonomy of a child and the capacity to be autonomous is a different space. And it's also a changing and evolving space and an uncertain space. How autonomous is a child at a particular age, what effect does their illness have on their capacity to be autonomous? So I th- the principles are respect for autonomy. This is a child, a child is a person. <laughs> and so they, they should, they deserve respect. And that means their wishes and thoughts and beliefs deserve respect or acknowledgement. And we'll talk a bit more about how you figure that out and what it looks like. And, um, uh, bringing in the child's voice is also likely to be um, a benefit. So I, I'm sticking around those two uh, principles and, and, and it's harmful not to include a child's voice, in fact, for the child. So there's another principle. Yes, that's right. So one of the things that, that I think you raised there uh, is that it, you know, it's respectful to the person and I, and I think that opens up quite a wide space of, of thinking about the child and I think in many ways, that's actually what a paediatrician is, is somebody who deeply understands children and is respectful of children. And of course, that starts from birth and they may be uh, the neonate. Is there a sense of timing though, Claire, where you think that the obligation to start thinking about the child and including the child with their ideas uh, starts? Well, there is, I guess, but it's it's really dependent. Well, uh, the easy answer is, of course, it depends on their age and their thinking capacity. Um, but it also depends on the nature of the decision, which um, 
you're wanting to involve them in. If it's a if it's a really simple decision, then you can bring the voice of the child in much earlier and for good reasons. If it has um, sort of serious consequences, then you might want to evaluate, does this child have the capacity to understand this such that they can contribute? And one other thing I, th- I think is important in thinking about a child's capacity is you may uh, think about um, the future when a child will have capacity to contribute and what is the decision you're making now? How is that going to impact on that child's capacity to do that? Or um, are you cutting off options that the child might be able to contribute to? So I think I went beyond the question there. No, that's all right (laughs) because I think there are so many issues to this, but preserving potentially later decisions or options is certainly a, a very important thing. I might just ask, Linda, some accounts of this uh, might consider that once a child is able to express a preference, then their moral status increases in this space from simply being alive and a person to now they can express some preferences and therefore we need Mm. to take that into account. Mm. So I was thinking when you ask Claire about when does this start, um, it's tempting to say something like, well, it starts when a child is, is able to talk and then they can tell us something about what they think. And a two or three year old can easily express in words that they are frightened of this or they don't want to do that. But actually, if you think back even earlier, even children who are not able to talk can quite clearly communicate um, their feelings. So if we're thinking about the voice of the child, I think we need to take it not too literally. It's not just what they're able to say. It's what they're able to communicate with us. And clearly the the extent to which that can be a kind of sophisticated discussion with a range of options really only opens up as they get older. But even from a very young age, we can see that a a baby might be averse to some situations or be frightened. But of course, that doesn't mean that we should make our decisions just based on the child's aversion, for example. So if a baby doesn't want to be vaccinated or scared of a needle coming near them, that's not a reason not to vaccinate them. But it is a reason to take account of that and say, we don't want this baby to be frightened. Uh, We don't want the three-year-old to have to have a procedure being forcibly held down. So their their view about the situation matters and should be taken into account, even if it's not going to ultimately determine whether the procedure happens or not. It might have an influence on decisions about how to do the procedure or when to do the procedure or where the procedure is, is done. So it's, it's, I think it's helpful if we think not just about the medical treatment decision, but all of the decisions around it. Can I just add to that? I think um, it also opens up some thinking in the person doing things to a child in that they have to justify why they're doing it now. If they've thought about the child's experience, even if it's not going to alter the the pathway, it does help to uh, provide um, some um, thinking for being able to justify why. Uh, there's good reasons to do this, even though the child is not experiencing a good time having this procedure done to them. So that thinking ethically about a child's voice, even when they're not able to speak, or even if they're 
voice is something you disagree with is still ethically important. It, it alters things. I mean, I think, Claire, the, the, the point about getting it wrong and you mentioned and harm and I think is is moral injury, which is there and a sense of moral injury. And kids have a great sense of natural justice and I think moral injury as well. And so that by not canvassing their ideas and or if it's even sooner, considering where they sit uh, and how they might respond to whatever's being planned for them, then we have the risk of creating moral injury. We need to think up ahead about minimising that, but accepting, Lynn, as you've said, that perhaps in their best interests, they're going to have to proceed with something that uh, is an element of, of noxiousness to them and proceed. Claire, what about rights, though? So we've sort of talked about a little bit about foundational sort of principle, respecting the person, and perhaps that's, that's bound up in autonomy, but we're going to talk about that a little more in a moment too. But just what about rights? The United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child says that we should consider the child in matters that affect their life. So do you think that obliges us more strongly or we're already obliged? I think that rights language um, helps to... Um, articulate um, what is important for a class of people or, or, or for a person and that it cements it into uh, something that people have to take notice of. But I think in this case the rights language doesn't necessarily help the paediatrician or the, 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 the clinician looking after a child to know how to do it. <laughs> they, they, you can... A child can have a right to something, but someone's got to give effect to that right. And I think that's where the complexity lies. So I don't think anyone, well, uh, having said, I was about to say, I don't think anyone disagrees with the rights of a child to have a voice, but I suppose um, it's only been around for a couple of decades, even that statement. So <laughs> so I think the advantage might be 1989 yeah. uh, that it's taken it uh, to become sort of a normative attitude perhaps. Yeah. Lynn, I know you're not a fan of rights, but it does appear in some of the literature around this uh, emerging topic. Yeah, and I think for the reason Claire was talking about, um, I'm more inclined to talk about rights and find the idea of child rights useful in this context because it makes us think more about this thing as being important if we call it a right. So if we say a child has a right to a voice, that means even if I don't think it's necessary and even if the parents don't think it necessary, the child has an intrinsic claim to being noticed for themselves as their own person. And as Claire said, someone has to give effect to a child's rights. It's really hard for a child to to stand up and claim their voice, claim their right to have a voice. Um, so the, the right then puts responsibilities or obligations on others. And I think it tells us that that responsibility or obligation has to play out in terms of directly engaging with the child rather than just imagining what the child might think or imagining what the child might feel because we're concerned about the child's psychology. We don't want to do psychological damage. So, yes, we can imagine it. But the idea of a, that the child has a right to a voice is to say we have to ask the child, not just imagine what they might say or think that we know what they might say. So it sounds like, Lynn, at least in this space that rights actually has a little more utility than we would normally use them in in bioethics. Yeah, I, I guess I'm saying this, I feel like there's more reason to use it in this context, at least until 
we are operating in an ethical environment where that's just kind of so obvious that we should ask the child. There's hardly any point in really talking about it anymore, but I don't think we're there now. So the idea of directly talking to the child is maybe a newer idea. Yes, and I think we, we're sort of understanding now that there's this intrinsic benefit to respecting the child, considering them as a person, trying to consider their preferences verbal and uh, nonverbal. Uh, and then, Claire, you, I think, started to mention that uh, that instrumental utility of this. So that's obviously important across the spectrum of age groups that we look after children. It's obviously very important at the beginning where the instrumental use perhaps has less utility and then instrumentally it becomes important to do this. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think you can you can look really in a fine-grained way about um, instrumental being of value or thinking of um, thinking this idea thinking about this idea of bringing in a child's voice as instrumentally valuable. And as you said, it doesn't seem hugely important when they're a newborn um, to to take some time to look at their experience, although I, I would argue it, it is valuable, but it might not be as obvious to some people. This is the new grandmother speaking. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, well, it's also the um, PhD supervisor whose, whose student is um, looking at the experience of a child in NICU, of a, of a baby. So I do think there's a, there's a, sh- a shift even to recognising the, the value of learning from a child's expressions, as Lynn was pointing out earlier. Um, and you can also take it out of that fine-grained, well, you know, there's there's use in doing this because the child will cooperate more, to it being a cultural shift in when we treat and look after children, uh, we don't just think about the clinical effect of that treatment, but we acknowledge the person in, in there. <laughs> and I think that's happened more obviously in the adult um, space with shared decision-making and patient-centred care. But how does that play out with, with children? I think, with that, and that's what we're talking about, obviously. And I think, Claire, that you, you're right, that I think it is new, and that's how I've framed this, because I think that, you know, what we've tended to do is we've been nice to kids and courteous and fun. And build a relationship, develop trust. Well, even just nice and courteous and fun, but there's actually a deeper purpose to that. And I think that's what we want to try and bring out. That's fantastic. But working with children, being a paediatrician or being a paediatric healthcare worker, it runs more deeply to this you know, very serious element of respecting the person and very practical element of intrinsic, of, of instrumental value into um, that relationship. And as I say, I don't know that we're there well enough uh, yet. Lynn, Claire has used the word autonomy and I, I hear that and, and, I, and I think of two claims and I, I hear the parents have their autonomy and, and in bioethics we talk about respect for autonomy so it's sort of we're respecting it. We don't absolutely have to totally be autonomous. It's about respecting that autonomy. But they've got the parents' claim, well, you know, this is my child 
and I normally make decisions and, and this is what I think is best for this child of, of any age versus, well, now we're starting to say, well, the child's got, uh, is it autonomy? Um, they might be three years old or they might be 13. So how are we dealing with these competing yeah. claims? Um, so it is helpful to think about what we mean by the, the term autonomy. So strictly speaking, autonomy is not just the ability to express a preference or to have an idea. Autonomy means having the cognitive capacity to think things through and having a formulated view of yourself and the world and what matters to you so you can take in information, relate it to your views and values uh, and make a decision that will promote your life going the way that you want it to. Now, when you describe autonomy like that, it's really clear, I think, that young children can't I mean, that sounds like that. can't to me. Yes, it is. And so when we respect an adult's autonomy, that's the kind of autonomy that we're talking about. For And in that space where a child might be a mature minor, an, adolesc- an older adolescence, I think we're getting towards thinking that's the sort of capacities we might be ascribing to that 16 or 17-year-old. For younger children, when we talk about their autonomy, I'm wanting to put it a little bit in inverted commas or at least to to change the framing of it, um, and it, where, where it means something more like agency, capacity to, to be involved in discussions, to understand what's going on. It's not necessarily the capacity to make a decision which accords with their deeply held values, so it's not autonomy in that sense, but there's still lots of ways in which a child has the capacity to engage in the world and their life goes better if they engage with what's going on around them and their position and views are taken seriously by others. And so it, to me, that's the bit that we're talking about in particular is really recognising that there's not a sharp divide between um, adults and maybe gillick competent adolescents whose views should be totally respected and acted on and then below that children's views don't matter at all. We're trying to open up this space for children's views and preferences matter um, at younger ages and developmental stages without, and that makes sense to say and it's important to say, even though it doesn't mean the child gets to have the decision-making authority and have their views completely acted on in the way that they want. But I reckon that's a tricky space in various ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we're here having the discussion. But I, I think what I really also take from that too, Lynn, is is that we're not talking about ceding decisional authority to the child. And I think that's an easy misconception and, and maybe easily picked up by, you know, perhaps an older generation who's used to children just doing what they're told. So we want to consider them, involve them, but uh, we're not saying you get you get to choose. Yeah, and what the thing that Claire was talking about before, uh, as well about the nature of the decision, th- that's also important to take into account. So there are some choices. I don't want to even call them decisions. There are some choices that it would be rel- it would be perfectly reasonable to offer to young children about which arm to have an injection in or whether to sit on the chair or sit on mum's lap or whatever it is, which might seem really small to us and we don't even necessarily think of them as a decision, but they're important in the child's agency and interaction with the world. And it it's in within the scope of the child's, I guess, capacity to make a decision for themselves that they can decide which arm. And it doesn't matter medically speaking. It doesn't matter in terms of the procedure. So if we can give them that choice, this idea of respecting the the child and um, 
respecting the child's right to a voice, says if we can, we should, because that's a uh, you know an instrumentally but also an intrinsically valuable thing to do, worthwhile thing to do to to bring that child more actively into what's happening. I mean, Lynn, you, I just want to ask you: you've answered the you've answered part of the question, which is the child's autonomy. And you've dodged the the competing claim. So uh, oh yes, I have. You have. So I'm going to go to Claire. Yeah, I, I might get a, I might get a straight answer from ah, Claire. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, I'm going to dodge it first of all, <laughs> because I just wanted to pick up on Lynn's initial or Lynn's um, characterisation of uh, autonomy being to do with um, a decision which is which accords with your life values and and is perhaps consistent um, and represents you. And I would think that a three-year-old who persistently and consistently um, asks for a particular thing, um, you know, the, their purview is that's their life world and they are consistent about this desire for the moment. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's a really good point, Claire, and I think what it shows is that Having consistent values is not enough to no. give you capacity for autonomy in the Kantian full-blown sense because a child might persistently want, as we sometimes see in Main Street here, an ice cream every time they come in uh, and that doesn't that doesn't Suggest. change. That's always yeah. the case. doesn't mean we should give them the ice cream. doesn't mean we should give them the ice cream instead of yes. whatever treatment they've come in for. So I think it shows that just having stable values is not enough. No. We want... For that big, really full-blown idea of autonomy, we want some sense of, uh, I guess, context and long-term and understanding competing considerations and so on, which is the bit that the three-year-old yes. doesn't have. And I think the value, though, in acknowledging the uh, three-year-old's um, consistent preference but not perhaps sophisticated understanding of the meaning of their preference or the long-term effect uh, is that it also promotes in a child a capacity to or, or a motivation to think for themselves, which I think is something, um, I mean, we talk about respect for autonomy, which feels a tiny bit passive or uh, yeah. I respect you, so I am doing something good for you. Whereas I think if you think about a paediatrician's or anyone who cares for a child's obligation to promote a child's well-being, not just respect it, I'll do enough that you're good enough and clothed and fed, but but generally we regard um, more to looking after children such that they can thrive. And, and that's where I think promoting a child's autonomy might give you a better way of, of understanding why you would sit down and take notice of what they want, even though you know you're not going to do what they want. <laughs> Because, sorry, just to clarify, Claire, so you're thinking about promoting their autonomy means actually actively um, increasing their capacity to do that, coaching, teaching, yes. Yes. not just saying, oh, well, you've only got a ver you have no autonomy now, so there's nothing to respect, yes. but actually to see yourself as part of the process of getting to them to the point where they do have mm. capacity for autonomy. Yeah, and I think we do that in lots of different ways. We 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 promote a child's well-being by getting them to exercise or, or eating as well as they can because we know ultimately in the future that's going to benefit them. And similarly, if we can start promoting their capacity to be involved in their own 
health decisions. Is that the doctor's job, Claire? Is that the parent's job? Uh, good question. <laughs> I think it's. I think it is the doctor's job. I think it is a, a health practitioner's job. You can't just only focus on clinically what you're doing and ignore the child as a whole. It's a sort of. I mean, I don't think that will come out. That comes out yeah. in chronic disease, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's uh, where where we're looking to have a young person who then becomes a young adult who is knows about their disease, knows what goes well for them, knows how to make decisions and actually knows how to work the system, which is you know, sort of related uh, to this. So that, but so we haven't answered the question about the parents and that uh, might give can you Can I have chance. a go now? Uh, you had some thinking time, I have, have you? John. All right, Lynn. So the question really is we had competing claims about whose autonomy and you've explained nicely about the children's and now we want to find out, well, how does that compete against the mm. parents and maybe lead on to, well, do the parents coach them as well? Mm. So the first thing I wanted to say about parents was in response to your question about whose responsibility is it to promote the child's capacity for autonomy and to elicit their engagement, get them, uh, give them an opportunity to say what they want to say. Um, I think maybe we have in the past largely left that to parents. And so the child's views come into it or the, the, the yeah, the child comes into it via the parents and we rely on parents to take into account their particular child's views and preferences and concerns and so on. It seems to me that by talking about the importance of respect for the child uh, and the right of a child to have a voice, that we're saying it's not enough to just rely on the parents and uh, clinicians have an obligation to do that directly. So that's a, uh, an engagement between the clinician and the child that doesn't go via the parent. Um, and so if we're thinking about shared decision-making, I think one of our claims might be that shared decision-making is not just shared between parents and clinicians, it should be shared between parent, clinician and child. So there's, you know, there's three identifiably different parties in there. The tough bit, though, of course, isn't it, is what if what the parents want is different from what the child wants. And that must be the case in healthcare so many times. Very, it's not typical for children to want to have procedures. Is that fair to say, oh, I John? I think that, that, that's that absolutely match fair your to say. experience? I, uh, absolutely. And so then, you know, so then we get into, um, you know, what's best for the child and best interests and who's best to decide that. And obviously for younger children, it's, it's likely to be it's the adult and, and the paediatrician or their, both of their experiences and the values of the parents and the way they think life uh, should go. But uh, the danger, I guess the danger yeah. of, of a best interest model, and it's a very legal model, uh, is that the only consideration is best interests. And so we're not obliged to ask the child or canvas views or preferences or involve them particularly. We're just doing what's best for you. And that then is part of the reason we're here today because mm. that can trump respect for persons. Mm. So, but quickly. my other concern, John, which I thought you were getting to about the danger, a potential danger is we engage directly with the child, we're interested in what they've got to say, we hear about their concerns, we elicit their preferences, and then we just do the opposite of what they said. And that will be the case many times. If their preference is not to have some intervention or procedure, in the end we're going to do it anyway. So I do think we have to worry about 
what have we done by have we is that just really disrespectful to the child or really deceptive to to pretend to care about what they say and then say, oh, actually, doesn't matter what you say, we're doing this. I mean, I think anyway. there's, a, there's a third side to that two-sided coin um, because <laughs> the, you know, the American Academy of, of Pediatrics in their 1995 document about assent and consent and, and dissent basically said, well, if you're not going to agree with what the child does, don't ask them. And uh, you know that that at first look is a pretty pragmatic response, and I think that um, you could very quickly get to that. You could very quickly get to that position, and of course, in medical decisions uh, are often made very quickly in terms of this needs to be done. But sometimes there needs to be some work to get the parents to come along, and obviously the child in terms of getting towards what would be uh, in the best interests of the child. And I think we should then, you know, there's a wider account of best interests, which includes the respect for the child. So of course, if you're going to go to theatre to do an operation and there's no choice about it, then we're not going to be presenting either the parents particularly or the child, you know, with a choice or with a right of veto. However, that's not to say you shouldn't include them in discussion about what needs yeah. to happen and frame that in a way that can include them and in an instrumental sense try and get some locus of control for the child uh, and uh, again promote them in what's going on for later decision making and every procedure needs to go well. So we need to include them. And I think that takes into account intrinsic and instrumental principles. So what you've done there, I think, John, is paint a picture of what it looks like when it goes well. So we engage the child, we get them on board, they understand what's happening, they understand why it needs to be done. They might even accept, I don't really want this to be done, but I can see why it needs to be. Uh, they have a good experience, all good. Um, we've met our ethical obligations mm. And it's all worked out well. But what about the circumstances where the child doesn't come on board and we end up doing something when the child doesn't see the reason? I'm wondering if, Claire, if you've got a, a view about that. So does that mean we shouldn't have engaged them in the first place because now yeah. they feel worse than they did well, before? I, I think what you've done is um, given me a good segue to... to um, I think what's important is having a philosophical view of... Uh, why am I involving, or an ethical view of why am I involving the child, which is why you need to listen to all these podcast series on, on this. <laughs> but uh, because I think if you don't have that considered view and, and thought about it, then um, you will charge ahead and think, I've got to give the child information about what's going to go on, but I might not take notice of, of, of um, or... I've got to listen to the child, but I might not take notice of what they say. Uh, so you actually have to think, um, what will I say to the child? <laughs> uh, what is realistic? How do I manage the expectations? What is possible in this situation? What is appropriate? And you've got to have good reasons for why you think it is appropriate. But um, it just keeps coming back to that idea of you do have to have a sense of why the child's voice is important in this instance um, and how you might manage to bring it in and to 
respect it and limit it if that's something that needs to be done as well. So it does need to be a planned process. Yeah, there's thinking about it is important, but I think there are practical things that one can do even when you know the child won't want it, but you've got but but you've got to do it. But I think that concern is, and I think you know we all know that it's happened that everything just charges on, uh, and there's moral injury with overriding a child's uh, preferences. And you might just have to wear that in the greater good of, of best interest. But we, I think, what we're talking about is by respecting the person, we're trying to minimise that moral injury. But having recognised that we've done something that they really were unwilling to have done, perhaps then we need to circle back ah. afterwards and think, well, then is there something we can do afterwards that might also address the harms, address the harms yeah. that we've created? Mm. So even though we don't think we've done the wrong thing by going ahead with a procedure when the child was reluctant, John, you're suggesting that after that happens, there's maybe more we can do to make that an even more ethically appropriate yeah, and scenario. we combined with what we've done beforehand to engage, uh, and obviously yep. a lot of it's done in an instrumental way, but I think we'll have the audience now will be thinking of an intrinsic, respectful way. Um, and then, yeah, coming back afterwards and not being afraid. I don't know if you call it an apology. I've had some uh, disagreements with, with practitioners about, you know, apologising uh, to children, and I'm not sure that it, that, that has to be around the word apologising, but it, it's acknowledging that there's hurt. So that is an idea in the literature, isn't it? It's been suggested that uh, the appropriate, the ethically appropriate thing to do is apologise to the child afterwards if you had to do something, if decision needed to be made to go against what the child wanted, you should go back and apologise afterwards. It sounds though, it could, I think if, that's why I don't necessarily like the word apologise. It sounds very much like a footballer's apology. If what I just did to you was hurtful to you, then I'm, I'm sorry you got hurt. You know, what's that about? That's not... I think what we mean, I think it's acknowledging that something had to be done, that there's a greater purpose and that uh, exploring what's left over. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not one person, maybe it's not apologising, but rather ex- giving the child a chance to debrief or yep. tell tell you about what that meant to them which is different ah. to an apology. So that's really interesting because the apology, I was about to say I quite like the idea of apologies, but the apology comes from the clinician, so it's the yeah. clinician's voice, yeah. whereas what you're suggesting is giving the child a chance to tell you how they felt about that, yeah. which is the child's voice, isn't it, yeah. which is what you were trying to do in the first place. That's right. So I really like which that Which is idea. not the physician trying to make themselves feel better yeah. Yeah. That's about, right. Uh, that's right. about what's just happened. Um, but actually going back to what we've started with is, is actually the child and respecting yeah. respecting the child and their views about what's, about what's happened. There's one question I wanted to pick up on or, uh, or comment that when you asked whose responsibility is it, is it the doctor's responsibility to um, uh, ensure that the child's voice is heard or... Or is it the parents' responsibility? Do we leave it to the parents or, or do you take over at some point? And I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, we acknowledge that parents are the experts around their child and, you know, they've um, they've brought the child up in the way that um, is best for their family and, and as best they can. When the child comes into hospital, um, what happens to parental authority because the decision is now about health and illness and procedures. Parents aren't experts about that. 
So I think it's a really, I don't think we can answer that now, but what what is the extent of the doctor's response or any clinician's responsibility to take over from parents? Yeah, I think that's a really challenging question, Claire, because as you say, when it's about the decision about which medical treatment or form of, of healthcare management to have, yeah. it's easy to see that health, uh, clinicians have or, or have expertise about that. When it's a question of to what extent the child gets to be involved in the conversation or express their views, that's not a matter of medical expertise. And and I guess different parents uh, in different families have different views about that and bring their children up to be more or less active in, in engaged uh, and involved in family decision-making or else to be um, essentially to follow the parents' lead and the job of children is to um, do what their parents want them to do. There are just different views about that. So it is challenging to think about um, I guess clinicians stepping into that parent-child yeah. relationship. But I mean, I think as a paediatrician, we're thinking broadly about a child's life going well, and we know that regardless of the parent's view about them, the child's going to turn eighteen, and there may be cultural elements that they still make decisions as a group or a family in that. But however, still going to be expected to m- make some decisions, uh, and I don't think it's necessary all or one or both. I mean, I think there's an element of the doctor coaching the parent to ah. coach the child in the medical setting and become uh, a, a decision maker. But I think this is what hopefully comes out through the rest of the series. So I think it's a really good point for us to to wind up and uh, reflect on, you know, what we've learned about that deciding with children isn't ceding all decisional authority to children no matter what age. It's about respecting children of all ages and acknowledging that that is intrinsically good and then has instrumental values and the ethical principles we've discussed and even rights that have become out of normative perception of how children should be involved in decisions that affect how their life goes. And that some of the simplistic models like autonomy don't necessarily directly work, which is, I think, why we, including you, favour respect for the child as opposed to simply respect for autonomy. Uh, And and then we've got to ask because we've got to know, are we trampling over somebody's uh, somebody's view and and, and that may not be uh, how they feel their life is going to go well, even if they're a little kid and different, they might feel differently later. So there's a lot, there's a lot in this. Uh, So thank you to Lynn. And thank you to Claire for joining us today on Essential Ethics to start to shift deciding for children to deciding with children. And we don't have a poll, but we could in another forum. But I hope that our audience is coming along with us. And I hope that that we are influencing the way that people who work with children are thinking about the work that they're doing and the way to include children in that. So thank you very much, Lynn. Thank you, John. Thank Thanks, you very John. much, Claire. And thank you for joining us for the first episode of Deciding with Children. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a review on your podcast app and share the podcast with your colleagues and friends. In our next episode, we're going to consider consent refusal and see if Gillick competence is really fit for purpose. Later podcasts will road test some of the concepts in deciding with children with actual cases. 
This podcast was made possible by the generous donation of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital Auxiliary. The podcast was produced by Dr Georgina Hall and recorded in the studios of the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services. If you want to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, which is held in the first week of September, then look us up on our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics, be inspired. <laughs>